If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to Psalm 78. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Um, as we um, begin this new year, um, it's, it's always a time of uh, taking um, some moments for reflection, thinking through perhaps some goals uh, and priorities for the coming year. Um, and the truth is, it's already been a very difficult, challenging um, start to the new year with the, the loss of our, our brother, Rick. Um, thank you for your prayers and for your support. And um, the family certainly wishes that everyone could have uh, attended the service, but because of COVID, we, we just couldn't handle the numbers. But as we begin, uh, this passage I've selected today is a psalm that uh, it serves as a reminder to God's people of all ages what it is in terms of general principles that God wants his people to prioritize and to make front and center in their lives. Okay? The psalm has a similar feel to uh, the sermon that Moses delivered to the Israelites that, that youngest generation just prior to uh, their entering into the promised land under the uh, leadership of Joshua. And, and, and that's the, the sense, that's the kind of the feeling um, of this sermon in Psalm 78. Uh, this is a lengthy psalm, um, and so I'm only going to be able to, to work through about the first half of it. But um, the, all the themes are there. Um, and, and so um, I think you'll find that this is a, just a, a, a good reminder. It's not difficult to understand. It is hard to practice, <laughs> as so much of Scripture is. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading Psalm 78, uh, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, break forth new light from out of your holy word. And when we cannot see the way before us, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, trusting that we are secure in your strength and love. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The psalmist begins with an introduction in which he emphasizes the importance of hearing my words. 
This is his uh, version of a call to worship. Uh, The psalm is ascribed to a man named Asaph, um, and we know that there was an Asaph who uh, was a Levite, and he was the leader of all the singers and and, um, also referred to as a seer or a prophet. And so that would fit in terms of the authorship of this uh, psalm. However, it is possible that the the, uh, reference to Asaph, it could also refer to one of his uh, descendants uh, because his sons were very important, um, uh, as it turns out, within the worship at the temple. Um, But either way, um, uh, this is a a psalm, and and he's writing not merely as a poet, but also as a prophet. And the opening verse calls the people to attention. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. You know, think of a sergeant walking into the barracks, calling for, the, for all of the personnel to stand at attention in the presence of a superior officer. And they stand too and give their full attention. That's what the psalmist is saying. What I'm going to say to you is important. It is flowing from the Spirit of God. These are words of life, and they are meant to be front and center in your hearts and in your minds. The Lord, every Lord's Day, he wants our full attention, our full undivided attention. The psalmist tells us that what he is about to utter in verse 2 is a parable. This is a saying of old. It's been passed down from their fathers. Now, when he uses the, this word parable here, um, he, he's not referring in the same sense that Jesus, as he uses parables, which were, are largely fictional stories that are meant to teach um, spiritual truths. Here, he's using real history. Uh, as he works through this lengthy psalm, he's um, going back and he's especially um, uh, working through the history of the Exodus and the history of God's people, uh, the Israelites, as they wandered through the wilderness. So he's talking about real history, but he uses this parable because he's using this history to teach these abiding spiritual truths, these lessons that God's people need to hear and apply within their lives in every generation. So important are these truths that they have to be passed down from parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren, generation to generation. This is always a solemn obligation of the older generation to be intentional, and exerting themselves to instruct, to encourage, and exhort the next generation in the ways of God. And verse 5, when he talks about it, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. He's saying there's something uniquely important about this transmission of spiritual truth, of, of wisdom, of God's word for the people of God, because it's to the people of God. It was to Israel, in this case, that he uniquely reveals himself. He gave to the Israelites the law of God. 
He gave to the Israelites. He sent angels to them with dreams and visions. He sent to them and raised up prophets. There was a unique responsibility, you see, within the the Israelites and the people of God. And it's the same with us today. As those who follow Jesus, it is true of the church that we have been given special privileges from God that he has revealed to us through both the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, oracles, treasures of spiritual truths that not only benefit us in the present, that not only hold out for us a vision of a far better way of life, but hold out for us truths that will benefit us for all eternity. How much more important is it for the church to be active and for the parents, you know, who are followers of Christ to pass down the mighty truths that have been passed and given to us? Bringing up the next generation in the training and admonition of the Lord, as Paul puts it, is never peripheral in the mission of the church and family. It is always and rightly a central concern. Well, what is it that is to be passed down? Is there a way to summarize the big ideas that are to be guarded by God's people and to be passed down? Well, the psalmist summarizes these truths under three headings. And so verses 7 and 8 give us these three headings, and they also serve as a kind of thesis, um, the summary statement that, that really directs the rest of the psalm. In verses 7 and 8, we just see these three truths. One, put your hope in the Lord. Two, don't forget. Remember what God has done. Three, keep his commandments. These are the three, these kind of overarching headings that the psalmist is laying out before his readers and that remain just core and central for us today. But this first truth is the overarching one, this first priority. Put your hope in the Lord. Hope in God. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? (laughs) But for anyone who's attempted to really do this on a daily basis, you know that it is no simple achievement. First, when we're talking about our hope, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, things that we hope, you know, uh, for in the coming days or in the coming week. What he's describing here when he says, put your hope in God, he's talking about your, your ultimate hope. He's talking about what it is that you look for, uh, where you look for your security. What is it that you are looking to give you your, your happiness? This is what he's, he's talking about, this ultimate hope. This means we are to daily trust in the Lord to be our refuge, our security and protection. We're to trust in the Lord to provide our source of meaning and purpose and significance. We're to trust first in the triune God to get us out of whatever hole we find ourselves in. We're to trust in the Lord to provide us with our daily bread. And especially we're trusting the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, for the gift of eternal life, 
and for our redemption. Now, again, all this sounds simple, and it's easy to understand what he's saying here. But the critical piece is, this is not simple. And because it's easy to do this when things are going well. But what happens when we feel ourselves surrounded by threats? What happens when our future feels so uncertain? And by the way, this describes most of life in a fallen world. You see, the key question is, how do we put our hope in God when, we've, when we experience adversity, when we failed that class, or the boss says that he has to downsize and we may be out of a job? Or what happens when our spouse tells us they don't want to be married any longer? Or the doctor informs us that we may have a life-threatening illness. How do you put your hope in God in those circumstances? It's easy to set our hope in God when all is well, but that really misses the point of this command entirely. The real question, the question that the psalmist speaks directly to, is how do we set our hope in the middle of danger, in the middle of disappointment, in the middle of failure? How do we trust God when life isn't going the way we thought it would go or the way we think it should go? How do we trust God when it really looks like his plan for my life, well, it looks more like a C plus, (laughs) if even that. And we feel like we could do much better if we were in charge The first principle is set your hope in God. And so he continues in the second principle, the second great truth, to help us to say, how is it that we're able to set our hope in God when, in fact, it's not easy, when, in fact, we're surrounded by temptations and difficulties? Well, the second point is don't forget what God has done. Don't forget. Remember his mighty works just in slightly different words, Psalm 78, and not forget the works of God. As we recall what God has done, we are encouraged to know that God is mighty. We're reminded that he has the ability to supply us the grace we need. When we consider the mighty works of God, we're reminded that we're not alone, that God is with us. We're reminded that God is not against us. He is for us, that he loves us. As the psalm continues in verses 11 and following, our poet prophet gives us an example of the kinds of wondrous works that later Israelites um, and later um, uh, that they were to recall. And, and, and he introduces this passage by uh, alluding to a period of time when the Ephraimites, apparently after they had entered into the promised land, um, they were called to go to battle, but they did not trust the Lord in this call. And so they, they, um, uh, they backed off. They, they turned away from the battle that they were called to. And the psalmist goes on to recount, these are some of the things they should have reminded themselves of. And he begins in verse 11. The psalmist writes, they forgot his works and the wonders that he, God, had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders 
And here he begins to recount some of these wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, God led the Israelites with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow like rivers. We could recount, you know, you could even go back further into the plagues that were uh, released upon the land of Egypt, or the mighty miracles that we read about through the Old Testament. But certainly as, as um, uh, in the age of the church, we look to those great redemptive moments when God sent his own son. He invaded the world with his own presence in the form of the man, Jesus. We recount the mighty miracles which Jesus performed to demonstrate his great authority over the the demonic spiritual world. He cast out demons all uh, throughout the land. We recount his, his power to heal sickness. We recount his power, his authority over even nature when he calms the seas. We recount his ability to provide for his people as he multiplies. You know, he multiplies, you know, a few bread and fish and feeds a multitude of more than 5,000. We recount his ability to even raise the dead to new life. And he himself died as an atoning sacrifice that our sins could be dealt with and forgiven. And then he demonstrated his own authority in being raised from the dead On the third day, now he's at the right hand of God in the heavens. And then you can begin to recount in your own life how God has answered prayer. The friendships, the people that God has brought into our lives. You think about the way he's provided for you. How many days have you gone without your daily bread? You think about his love, his patience to you, even when there were times where you were faithless, but he continued to remain faithful. You recount that he has been present with you. He reminds you of these promises and and those moments of need. And sometimes he sends an angel, usually in the form of another person, when you are most uh, down and discouraged and in need. Do you remember the ways in which God has provided and has ministered to you? He loves you, and he is with you. Spurgeon writes, if we contemplate the abounding of divine grace, we shall be lost in admiration. Mighty rivers of love have flowed for us in the wilderness. Alas, great God, he he says, our return has not been commensurate therewith, but far otherwise. Put your hope in God. Number two, don't forget. Remember what God has done. And then number three, keep his commandments. This is just the last part of verse seven. Again, putting your hope in God is the overarching truth. 
The key way to strengthening our ability to hope in God is by remembering what he has done. But then the question um, remains, how do we know if we are putting our hope in the Lord? (laughs) Is it just when, you know, our heart is just beating for the Lord and we're just so grateful for what God has done? We can be self-deceived. Sometimes we can compare ourselves to others and we think, oh, I'm coming out okay. But the Lord gives us another standard by which to, to begin to think through how we are putting our hope in the Lord. And it's this third one, do you keep his commandments? The psalmist probably has at the center of his imagination the Ten Commandments, the the law that God had given to Moses. However, as we consider both Old and New Testament, we, we recognize that the Lord Jesus also gives us commands. And we need to remember as we talk about commands, we don't obey in order to gain or to earn God's love. We obey because God's changed us. We are new creatures. The obedience we we want to render in our lives is is an indicator of what God has done, and it's a sense of our gratefulness and our thankfulness for what God has done in us. Obedience is not the heart of the gospel, but it should be one of the outcomes of the gospel. And Paul writes in Ephesians uh, verse two and, and uh, chapter two verse ten, for we are his that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is easy to deceive ourselves to convince ourselves that we're placing our hearts in God just because our hearts are in the right place but we need to look deeper. In John 14, 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Believing what God declares and then obeying it, uh, these are the hallmarks of genuine faith. Okay, We don't want to be deceived. Now, He's not talking about perfect faith. There's a reason why in the Lord's Prayer we pray, forgive us our our sins or forgive us our debts or our trespasses. Well, because we're sinners and we continue to sin. But there is such a thing as genuine obedience. There is such a thing as even when we fail, part of that obedience is just recognizing, allowing the Spirit to confront us so that we recognize our sin and we confess it, we repent, and we move on in following uh, Christ and what he wills for our lives. After giving us these three priorities that that need to be inculcated into our lives and then passed down to the next generation, the psalmist provides us with a strong warning. He says, don't be spiritually hard-hearted. So he's given us this kind of positive exhortation, but now he's going to show us the other side of the coin. He wants to continue to strengthen us by showing us what happens when we don't obey. 
In Psalm 78, uh, verse 8, um, the psalmist writes, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast. And one of the examples he uses in the psalm then is the example of the Israelites under Moses um, coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. We pick it up in verse 17. Yet they sinned, still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. So let's look at the, So he's giving us a good, bad example. <laughs> he's saying, don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. That's what he's saying. They didn't um, believe. Well, what, let's you know, just think about the Israelites wandering through the wilderness for a moment here. First, we have to recognize that their, um, uh, their complaints against God, their, their unbelieving hearts, it's within a certain context. It was within the context of all that God had just done for them in bringing them out with mighty power from, a, you know, the superpower of the time from Egypt. They were slaves. He delivers them from slavery. And it wasn't just them that God is delivering. He's delivering their children. He's delivering their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren out of this Egyptian bondage. And he did it with great power. He led them out, you know, after the mighty plagues. He, even as the plagues go on, he distinguishes between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And then as they go through the Red Sea, they walk across on dry land. This is part of the mighty works that are being recounted here. They, you know, not a hair of their head is getting wet. Even their feet somehow, you know, there's another miracle that the ground is dry. You can imagine even if you part waters in a river that the ground is going to be just full of mud and muck, but not a drop, you know, on the Israelites. When the Egyptians try to cross, the entire army is destroyed. It's wiped out. They pass safely. And then as they, they come into the, the, the wilderness, you know, they're coming with great riches. And it's not like, you know, they're all alone because as God leads them into the wilderness, he's not absent from them. He's right there. It's not like, you know, they just have to believe by faith, but there is a cloud by day. There's a, you know, this, this pillar of fire by night. He's right there. And yet already they, you know, as soon as they, they enter into the desert, they begin to think, yeah, there are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Israelites entering in. How, in the, how are these people going to eat? He gives them water. He ends up giving them this, this food from heaven, manna. 
And, and he goes on to talk about the manna, that it came in abundance for them. All they had to do was just go out and gather it in the morning. And on the sixth day, to show that it's God who's providing it, they would gather twice as much because it wouldn't come on the Sabbath so that they could rest, even from you know, whatever work there was in gathering the bread um, that was on the ground. The bread is described as angel's food, the food of angels. It was more than satisfying and nourishing for the people. But of course, what happens is, you know, they get tired of just one source of food. They, they want, they crave for meat. And we can identify that to be sure. So what is their sin? Well, the sin is in the context of all that God has done, that he is present with them, that they, they immediately um, or very quickly begin to complain. They are not grateful. They are discontented with what God has provided for them. That's their first sin. It's a sin of ungratefulness, a sin of discontentment in the face of all that God had done for them. But then the second sin, and really this is the greater sin, it's the sin of unbelief. And, and we pick it up as the, they, there's this word of mocking um, in verse 19. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can God feed hundreds of thousands of people in the desert? You know, what, what they're saying here is this is a rhetorical question, and the implied answer that they're, the way they're asking it is, no, nothing can save us. Not even God can, can change the desert into the wilderness. That's impossible. That's where their hearts are. Maybe theologically they could say, yeah, God could do that, but not really. Their hearts, they're looking, what's going on here? They're looking at their circumstances. They're not looking at the pillar, you know, the cloud or the pillar of fire. They're not being reminded of what God has done. They're not reminded that God has raised up this great leader in the person of Moses to lead them through. That's not what they're focused on. They're focused on their circumstances. It's like Peter, when he gets out, you remember, and he sees Jesus walking across the waves, and, and, and he says, you know, let me come out and join you on the water. And at first, when Peter gets out, he's, his eyes are in Christ, and he's walking on the water. But then what happens? He begins to look at the, the rain, the wind, the waves, and he immediately begins to sink. That's so much us, this battle of our hearts, this battle of unbelief, and we're warned here because this led to God's wrath. It led to not even a neutral blessing, like God just withholding from them blessings, but it just it provoked God to anger in their midst. They lost um, their uh, strong warriors. How can we guard ourselves from discontent and unbelief? Well, one way is just remember God's promises. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on his promises like Romans 8.32. He, that is God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God can do anything. And if it was his choice not to give the Israelites in the wilderness meat right away, or if the manna held off for a certain amount of time, what's happening there? God has a reason for that. 
Maybe it's a reason that has to do with the, the, the good of his kingdom, the good of future generations. Maybe it has to do with testing the people. Will they make God their highest, their, their most valuable treasure? Will they continue to serve him even if their circumstances are full of adversity and, and threat and danger? Or, as we see with these Israelites, will they really try to take matters into their own hands and give in to the unbelief in their hearts? You see, part of this trust and setting our hope in God is, is, is the understanding. God knows what's best. He knows what's best for his kingdom. He knows what's best for us. And he will give us the grace, you see, to endure whatever it is that he places in our paths. And when we trust him, this will lead to his glory and it'll lead to our long-term good. It will lead to long-term blessing. For the Israelites, it would have led them into the promised land far earlier if they had only believed. The Lord will supply us with the grace that we need. Let us set our hope in God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is our heart's desire to please you. Help us in our endeavors this and every day so that in the face of all challenges, we may be be able to finish the good work of faith which you have caused us to start and to begin. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.